facts and there's all sorts of evidence that we tend to uh, quickly call other people assholes, but not recognize it in ourselves. So something like 50% of Americans say that they have worked with um, or seen abuse in their workplace, but one half of 1% of Americans say they've ever been the abuser. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, coming to you from the Road 55 studio in Edmonton, Alberta, where every episode we feature a different thought leader or best-selling author, all in the name of helping you become the best leader you can be. Today, we have a special treat. We're joined by the legendary Bob Sutton, where we'll be discussing a variety of topics related to building a great workplace. Things like being a great boss, how to handle working for an a-hole, the role of emotions at work and how to use friction to your advantage. Bob shares lots of humorous and funny anecdotes and also tells some stories of some of the world's largest, most well-known companies like Pixar, Microsoft, and Google. It's a conversation that'll have you writing notes and laughing in your chair. Now my guest today is Bob Sutton. Bob is an organizational psychologist and professor of management science and engineering at Stanford University. He studies leadership, innovation, organizational change, and workplace dynamics. His main focus over the past decade has been on scaling and how to grow organizations, spread good things and remove bad things in teams, and enhance performance, innovation, and well-being given the distinct challenges in big organizations. Sutton received his PhD in organizational psychology from the University of Michigan and has served on the Stanford faculty since 1983. Bob, is the recipient of many prestigious awards and has published seven books, including The Knowing Doing Gap, Weird Ideas That Work, Hard Facts, uh, Dangerous Half-Truths and Total Nonsense, The No Asshole Rule, Good Boss, Bad Boss, Scaling Up Excellence, and The Asshole Survival Guide. I'm gonna really need my mouth washed out with soap uh, when this episode is over. Uh, Sutton and Huggy Rayo are currently working and writing on the Fiction Fix, and this book unpacks insights from their seven-year friction project, where Sutton and Rayo used academic research, case studies, workshops, and ongoing dialogue with scholars, executives, and, and innovators to learn how smart organizations make the right things easier and the wrong things harder without driving employees and customers bananas. Sutton's research and opinions are often quoted in publications such as the New York Times, the Times of London, the Atlantic, Financial Times, Fortune, and the Wall Street Journal. Sutton has also been a guest on numerous radio and television shows, including ABC, Bloomberg, BBC, CNBC, Fox, the NBC Today Show, and CNN. Bob has over 300,000 social media followers, and he's about to gain some more today. Bob, what a delight to have you. Welcome to Unleashed. Uh, it's great to see you, Jeff. Great to be here. <laughs> You're going to get a kick, uh, a kick out of this. So the studio where we record the episode, uh, Road 55, on their website, they've actually got a rule that says we do not work with assholes. And so uh, I thought you'd get a <laughs> Those are my people. <laughs> All right. That's Good for them. They must have been desperate the day they let me sign a contract with them. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, thought you'd get a, uh, I thought you'd get a big kick out of that. So, uh, Bob, this is, uh, this is a conversation I've been looking forward to for a long time. It seems like virtually everybody that we have had on past episodes, one way or another, has some affinity toward you or some connection toward you. So it's, it's, you know, it's very fitting that we'd be ending season five of the day. So thanks for making time for it. 
Yeah, so a lot of my old friends, I'm an old academic, so it, it, it's sort of like we collect people like barnacles or something. So yeah, like we had a lot of my old friends, you had Roger, Adam and I, are, Adam Grant and I are from the same PhD program. Uh, although I think I graduated 30 years before him, but he's accomplished five times as much. That guy's amazing. You've had wonderful guests. Yeah, no, that's great, Bob. I appreciate that. You know, and you and I bonded a few days ago over uh, sharing some stories about our father's entrepreneurial experiences, and I would say perhaps uh, with varying degrees of success. But one of the things uh, that was really fascinating for me is you suspect that uh, inadvertently your father may have had ties to the mafia back in the day. I wonder if you can elaborate. Could you elaborate on that for us? Well, he didn't have time. I, I can't believe we're starting with this. But so, so my my father blesses his heart. My late father. He failed as an entrepreneur in so many different ways. He eventually got sort of successful, but one of his failed ventures, this was in about 1962, was in Chicago. Um, and he went into the business of filling candy machines and cigarette machines, you know, with stuff, cigarettes, candy, and so on. Well, this is kind of a cash business, in, at least during that period in, in uh, Chicago. You, that was mafia territory. So they threatened he and his partner and my dad got scared and quit. And literally his partner, just, just like the movies, got his legs broken with a baseball bat, like about two weeks after my dad quit. So, yeah. So, uh, so I study entrepreneurship, but I've learned it's pretty scary. <laughs> Real. And Mar Martin Scorsese made a, uh, uh, made a career out of uh, creating characters out of that persona. So I think Joe Pesci has got uh, some people to thank for, uh, about that, that's uh, that's unbelievable. I'm uh, glad it's uh, glad it's in your rearview mirror, and glad it didn't catch up with you uh, at any at any point along the way. Uh, Bob, you've had a a really impressive and influential career, and I, I I couldn't help but wonder, like, what led you to want to become an organizational psychologist in the first place? Uh, it's it's kind of interesting. So so let let's. I think it's good to kind of back up and so what is organizational psychology? Uh, because so it's funny because. Adam Grant and I call each other organizational psychologists, but there's not that many of us. And, and to me, he might not agree is when you're an organizational psychologist, you're kind of always thinking about two things. One is what is it like to travel through the system? What does it feel like to be an employee, a customer, um, a leader or, and so forth? And then given where I, so that's the psychology sort of part. And then given where I sit, what can I do to make the organization better for other folks and me? So, so I've always been interested in that. And then, and then to, sort of, to sort of back up, when I was a psychology undergraduate um, major at, um, at Berkeley, it always just seemed to me that just studying the individuals wasn't enough. And it's funny to go back to my father, um, that, that my father, he, was, he always had all these things he was complaining about. First as a failed entrepreneur, then he was sort of successful and he was always frustrated about how difficult it was to be a, a government subcontractor. So it's funny, now I'm studying friction. He was always complaining about assholes. I studied assholes. He was a real, he was a pretty lousy boss. So I studied lousy bosses. Um, and uh, and uh, I mean, there, there's other things that have affected me, but just, just to back up, I think, I think the thread that runs through my work, um, I, I think that if you compare me to Adam Grant, which is, I think there's no comparison, that guy's amazing. But, uh, but Adam tends to focus more on the individual and I tend to focus a little bit more on the interchange between the individual and the organization. And uh, so for the Friction Project, Huggy, Rao and I are working on now, we're constantly thinking, well, 
not just what does it feel like what the system's doing to me, but every, and we have examples, everything from the CEO of a Fortune 10 company reducing friction to, I have an example of a department of motor vehicles person I met who made the visit better for all of us. I couldn't believe it. We went to the DMV and this guy did triage and gave us advice and formed stuff out and got us in and out with joy. I couldn't believe it happened. So, so to me, that, so I, maybe it's a long rant, but, but that summary of the interplay between the person and the organization and what I can do to make things better, I hope that's what runs through my career. That's so well articulated, Bob. I, I really appreciate that explanation and that description of what an organizational psychologist does. I think that's probably the most succinct definition I've ever heard. And I, and I love <clears throat> that you sort of talked about this, uh, the emotional journey of being an employee or a customer. Uh -huh. And then this other part that no matter where you sit in the business, what can you do to make life better for yourself and others? And I think that's just a really good perspective on sort of navigating where, where you may be situated uh, along your own unique journey. And I, and I want to talk about some of your early work. Oh, and sure. I know a lot of your early work that you, I mean, a lot of your early research really focused on like the expression of emotions at work. And you yeah. had some really interesting findings. Can you share some of those findings with oh, us? Oh, sure. So, yeah. So, so that's in the old days when I was, uh, you know, the first 25 years of my career as a publisher, parish academic. Sometimes even I forget that. But uh, so I did this stream of research with um, Anat Raffaele, who's, who's a professor in Israel now. And, and we, we studied sort of two different kinds of contexts. The first was contexts where people are part of what they're paid for was to be friendly. And from that, we had this crazy relationship with 7-Eleven, uh, Southland Corporation, which was eventually bought. And, and we did all this analysis. They spent millions of dollars trying to improve the courtesy in 7-Eleven stores, about $25 million. And they, they had all this stuff where, well, so how do you establish eye contact with customers, smile and say thank you and stuff? And uh, in there, and we talked about this a little bit offline. The thing I learned from that, in addition to the fact that uh, they were incredibly unsuccessful at getting people to be more courteous, that it happened because the then CEO of the company had a temper tantrum about having bad courtesy in the store. And then he forgot about it. And two years later, they had spent all this money, including a contest where some manager won a million dollars for the courtesy in her store. And he said, why are you bothering to do this? Uh, people don't go to 7-Eleven for a happy clerk. They go to get in and out fast and, and they'll only notice the, the clerk if they're incredibly rude. Well, we wrote all these academic papers that confirmed his, his hypothesis. And what I learned from that, um, and this gets an organizational psychology thing is, and we talk about this, there's this thing called executive magnification. Uh, CEOs and other powerful people are always complaining, oh, nobody listens to me. There's resistance to change, but they've got another problem. They're sort of like baboons in a troop, like the alpha male um, or female. And the underlings are watching them really closely and they magnify what they do beyond what they ever expect. So to me, that's kind of a good organizational psychology sort of thing. Um, so that's one part. And then the, the, the other kind of research I did, since there are other jobs where people are required to express negative emotion. So I did an ethnographic study, and I can't name the company even still, but a company that calls you when you're late on your Visa and MasterCard bill. So I was trained, I observed the collectors and everything. And, and you know, I, and I sort of learned how to 
create anxiety. And if I was going to do a two sentence summary of what did I learn about that? What they taught us was that when somebody's really, really upset and really, really anxious about their bill, you're nice to them and calm them down because the problem isn't anxiety. It's gently nudging them to pay the bill. But when people don't seem upset enough, then what your job is to upset them like, uh, do you ever want to buy a car? Do you ever want to buy a house? Um, and, and, and just things like that to sort of crank it up. So that was the one sentence summary was to be nice to nasty people and nasty to nice people. So that's what they taught us. Bob, I was going to say that, that, that that's a story that really kind of floors me to think about the intentionality about, uh, about leveraging whatever emotion shows up on the customer side. And I can't help but wonder like at what point, at what point does using that kind of information and psychology become helpful versus and yeah. sincere versus intuitive? Well, well, so the research we were, uh, the book that really influenced us was a book called The Managed Heart um, by Arlie Hochschild. She's a sociologist at UC Berkeley. And she talked about this notion, she called it emotional dissonance, that, that when you are, flight attendance was what she focused on, when you are required to express certain emotions that you don't feel that it's actually bad and there's a bunch of hundreds of subsequent studies that people con who constantly feel as if they're presenting their inauthentic self or they have to suppress how they really feel um that that it's it's bad especially in occupations where you have to really be nice and really be on the whole time and so so yeah th there are problems with emotional dissonance I, on the other hand uh, it, and it, it, it's complicated because in life, they call them feeling rules, that there are different places like, 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 like how do you act during, at a funeral? How, I mean, it's, it's, it's so, and some of those are functional and some of those are just oppressive. So, um, and, and, and when I go to a store, I don't want somebody to yell at me uh, when I don't deserve it. <laughs> I mean, so, so, so there needs to be, uh, be some boundaries. And that's one of the things that we sell to our employers. I mean, one of the things that I think I fairly Stanford expects of me is to have empathy and caring and to pay attention to my students, not to dismiss them and to be nasty to them. And I, I think it's fair that they expect that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And when I mean, you go back to the 7-Eleven example, uh -huh. because I think it happens a lot of time, that there, a lot of times there's a disconnect between senior leadership and what they think is right for the business versus what the business actually needs. Right. Are, are there, are there, is like, is there some, and I know it's a complicated topic, but are there some strategies or some, um, uh, some structural things that a company can have in place to ensure that they're not so far apart and disconnected? Like, you know, so 7-Eleven uh -huh. is trying to have this like customer intimacy and customer service model where it was, that's really not what they needed. They just needed speed and efficiency. Right. How do companies, make sure that they're more aligned with what their customers want and what the leadership team thinks well, they want. Well, well, I, I think there's, there's a standard answer, but, but I actually think it works, which, which is that, uh, and so I teach and I'm co-founder of the Stanford D school or Stanford design school. And one of the things that we teach is uh, our students to sort of follow customer journey stuff, which I suspect you folks do too. And it's such yeah. a simple, simple tool. And, and again, back to organizational psychology, when you follow how it feels for um, somebody to be, let, let's say a customer, um, what they're doing very often is they're traveling through the organization. So one of my favorite examples, uh, so, I, so I, had, uh, I had two students, Elizabeth Woodson and Saul Gardas, and this is in a D school class. And what happened was they worked with a social service agency 
And, and so what happened was this is a social service agency where we take, so what they did was they provided uh, benefits, especially money to families who had uh, like disabled children and stuff. And as um, parents traveled through the silos, they would just get stuck and it would take months. And, and, and we, we followed the journey map. It was like frustrated, angry, what's going on? Why, I feel like I'm nothing and so forth. And, and they showed the journey map to the folks at the social service agency um, and, and, and what they figured out. And it's a classic problem in silos that the handoffs were really messed up. And, and there's an HBR article we can send the audience about this. But, but the amazing thing that, that Saul um, and Elizabeth did, did was they rented a Winnebago and they took six of these, um, you know, they're, so, they're civil servants and, and, and put them in the Winnebago and they signed up people in the Winnebago. And, and what you had was people from six different silos sitting next to each other, who usually are spread around different buildings and have different schedules. And, and, and that wasn't an instant cure, but what it did is it led to a, a committee where, um, where, where the idea was to let's figure out how to help people through the silo. And their goal was to get it down to uh, two months or less. And mostly they have done that. So to me, that's, again, let's go back to organizational psychology. You go through the way it feels to go through the system, the way it feels to be one of those civil servants, and then let's redesign this organization together so it's better. It's not perfect, but they've all made it better. So yeah. that's, that to me is how I think of customer, just, that's just one example. There's lots of other solutions and problems, of course. Yeah, no, that, that makes some sense. I wonder, I mean, in the 7-Eleven case, if, uh, if the executive or the CEO was listening enough to the front lines as well, there's probably a lot of valuable, a valuable intel that that would have uh, been easily accessible had it been leveraged. Yep, yep, and 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 there there, there actually was an incredibly sophisticated research operation at 7-Eleven in those days. One of my former yeah. classmates from the University of Michigan, uh, Larry Ford, headed it, um, and the problem was not the intel; the problem was the disconnect between um, the senior executives and what happened sort of on the ground. So that was, so that's a structural sort of disconnection. And uh, I don't know if in this, in, in, the, in Unleash, you've talked about Amy Edmondson's research on psychological safety. Um, I, and it, to me, that might be the most important concept in whatever organizational psychology is in the last decade or so, or maybe the last 20 years. So one of the problems was that people were afraid to tell the CEO the truth. So, and, and, and we see this with Boeing, with uh, the, the disaster with the 737 MAX, the amount of fear that um, ran through Boeing. And, and so that, that is to me, one of the core problems. And I do think following Amy Edmondson's research, which is just magnificent and so important, is, is that uh, the first order of business, if you wanna do organizational change, is to make it safe for people to uh, complain, uh, safe for people to talk about their own mistakes. That's um, mm. really important and, and it's, it's easy to say and it's so hard to do. It takes so much role modeling. It, it's, it's, it's really quite a leadership art, but the leaders who do it wonderfully are fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we did have Amy on the program, a great episode. One of the things I love about Amy's, uh, uh, like the light bulb moment that went off for her when she was in the hospitals doing yes. her, her initial, you know, her research, was that the higher, the highest performing teams in hospitals made way more mistakes, and that was the light bulb moment for her. Was that it was not that they made more mistakes, is that they openly discussed them yep. more. 
Yeah, and, and so it's, and, that's, that's got implications for all of us. So, so one of the things that always, uh, the, the story that it always reminds me of, and I, I just have that psychological safety in my head all the time, is that one of the organizations I've been fortunate to have some involvement with over the years is uh, Pixar. And especially Ed Catmull, who's now retired, he was president for some 25 years. And this is, this is a long time ago, it was about 2008. Huggy Rao and I had a conversation with Brad Bird. It's published somewhere in the McKinsey Quarterly. And we're talking to him about, so Brad Bird is the Academy Award-winning director of all the incredible movies he wrote them. Uh, and and uh, Ratatouille, in fact, we talked to him about a week before he won the Academy Award for Ratatouille. And, and so he's describing to us, um, one of his most famous um, underappreciated films is called The Iron Giant. He's quite famous for it in the animation world. Most people have never heard of it, but he will tell you it's his best movie. So he took that over from somebody else, actually, as he did with Ratatouille. It's sort of like a repair job. And, and he told us a story. He said, so, so I bring together everybody who were making the, the movie with the first day, and I say to him, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to argue openly. We're going to have humiliation and joy together. That's going to be our norm. They said, I gave this great speech. And he said, they all looked at me. And then he said, okay, let's start making the movie. And he said, we had a movie to make. So he said, you know, he's, he's like drawing the stuff on the board and all that sort of stuff. And he said, for two weeks, I just drew on the board and I kept looking at them and saying, well, so any ideas? No, they, they just sit there. And he said, finally, after two weeks, one guy just raised his hand and said, so Brad, I, I just have one little comment. And then he said, so I accept. And he said, it took like another two weeks before, you know, we were arguing, we were... And, uh, and, and we were disagreeing and we were pushing each other and we were doing it with love. But the thing about that story is that um, sometimes leaders want to come in and say, okay, today we're going to have psychological safety. Uh, -uh. It's something that you build over time and you actually, you have to support every single day. And, and I, that's why I just love that story about Brad because he's, he's, he's a little nuts, but he's really, really self-aware. Absolutely. The, uh, the speed with which he created that safe environment surprises me, like only two weeks, but they must have been spending a lot of time together in that two weeks. Well, yeah, you're just in a room. <laughs> I mean, it's, like, yeah. it's like eight people, animators in a room, and he's, he's like drawing the storyboards. Yeah. And, and, and it's not like the kind of job where you so much go back to your office. He said, we were at the stage where we were sketching out the movie. So yeah, but yeah, well, it depends how long it does, it takes, um, to make movies it, it picks our i don't know about that case it, it picks our it takes uh you know really like about two or three years i i have a cousin her name's sherry singer she makes made for tv movies she's ex you can look her up executive producer of 35 movies the halloween town ones are most famous she usually gets just two weeks of filming and 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 start to finish on pre-production post-production is three months so so, so it's sort of like the fast food of movies. So in her case, and, and I interviewed her on my, my Friction podcast, and she said, if I lose a day, if the star doesn't come out of the trailer the first couple of days, it's like all over. So she has a completely different sort of thing. And, and by the way, she's a lot more authoritarian than Brad is because she doesn't have time to be, you know, overly sort of loving. Well, I think she tries. <laughs> yeah, well, <clears throat> excuse me. That sounds like the Hallmark movies. I think they filmed those in something like three days or something like yeah, that. Yeah, she's just... made some Hallmark movies. <laughs> I think There's she's no made turnaround. about 10 of them. The turnaround on that's uh, astounding. Uh, Bob, you've also done a lot of work on scaling. And 
you know, that's one of the probably the hottest topics uh, with a lot of leaders that we spend time with is yep. how do we effectively scale our company? And I know scaling is a big topic, but from your lens, I wonder if you could share some of the, the insights that you have learned from successful um, uh, scaling uh, up exercises and maybe even some common failures that organizations experience. Okay, well, that's, that's, a, that's a great. And as you say, it's just this huge topic. And, and I, I think it's sort of interesting to start with the word scaling a little bit. And, and well, I'll do the sort of the headline. I think the headline is that for the last decade, Huggy and I have been sort of wrestling with three elements that are related to leading at scale. One is what Silicon Valley folks now call scaling, which is growth. The second one, which by the way, if you go back 10 years ago and you went into the academic literature, um, they and we used to think that scaling wasn't growing. What scaling meant was there's an existing system and you spread goodness throughout it, which is actually somewhat different. So it's spread. And, and, and so you go to literature, education on nonprofits. On it, so scaling means spreading across an existing system. So we studied a lot of that. And then the third thing, which led to the friction book in, in large part is that um, as organizations get larger and complex and everybody in the audience knows this, things get harder and harder to do. So how do you sort of fight that, which is a little bit like fighting gravity? So that's that's sort of the headline, but um, but the way that Huggy and I got interested in scaling sort of goes back to 2007, 2006, before people were using the word scaling a lot and we thought scaling meant spread. Um, and uh, we were in an executive program. We're still running it with some other folks. Um, on on, on uh, customer focused innovation, something you folks do in your business, and uh, and so uh, so anyways, this guy comes up to us, and and it was pretty funny because he, he worked for Armor Meats. He actually you know the real spam. So he was head of the innovation group at Armor Meats, and he said to us, he said, so we've got a few people here who are really innovative, but the rest of the company isn't. How do we spread it throughout the company? So Huggy and I being academics, like, that's a really good question. We didn't know the answer to. So we've spent, you know, much of the last 15 years studying variations of that. And, and if I was going to start with one thing, and there's, there's lots of different elements of scaling, but when things work where it spreads across a large system, when it grows an organization, um, the thing that you see over and over again, and there's a really clear point of view from, from senior leadership about what is good and bad behavior. You might not like that behavior. Um, it actually may get them in trouble later, but to me, that's the hallmark of, of where great skate, like we, we always go, and I'll give you, I, I'll give you an example of, um, of just a wonderful CEO. So my, if you look at cases of large scale transformation of big organizations, there really aren't that many successes. There's a lot of failures. But, but if you look at what Satya Nadella has done at Microsoft, it's one of the most amazing cultural transformations I've ever seen. Because when he got there, you sort of had a culture and, and some of your people in the audience have probably seen the drawings at Microsoft where the definition of the cultures were pointing guns at each other. There was so much um, dysfunctional internal competition in the whole Microsoft culture was to be the smartest person in the room and the definition of success was when you left in the room, you killed all your competition and you were king. I mean, that was, that was like the culture. And, <laughs> and, and to the point, they actually used to teach people classes, executives, how to deal with that culture. I mean, they were, it was, and now under Satya Nadella, they have moved 
this sort of one Microsoft, more collaboration. And, and, and there's some great case studies on this that, that essentially they've moved from a know-it-all culture to your job is to be a learn-it-all culture. And, 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 and it just sort of just take that, those just are just words, know-it-all to learn-it-all. But if you look at a whole bunch of little micro behaviors, uh, they really have transformed in a remarkably impressive way. And, and I know about them uh, from working with them a little bit, but especially there's some wonderful case studies about them. This is like publicly available stuff. But to me, that's when it comes to scaling, there's a whole bunch of other details we can talk about. Uh, Buddhism yeah. and Catholicism is one of my favorite topics, for example. But, um, but, but it really, you have to sort of start with that for a system and for a group and, this, and have this idea, what is sacred and what is taboo? So what, what do we have to do to be successful here? And what are we forbidden to do? And that'll vary from organization to organization. Right. How, I wonder, Bob, if you could share some examples of that, because that this good, this concept of good behavior, bad behavior, uh, it just got me really curious about trying to figure out how how would a you know how would a typical uh, mid-sized company start to apply that thinking. Like, if you have some some examples of, of well, what well that actually... a great, I, I think one of the best examples is actually Netflix, because Netflix yeah. is really interesting and and. It, and we should probably some of you, if you're on, if you're near the web, look at the classic Netflix desk. So this is this is sort of before they became the world's largest production company. Um, and and they, so this is Reed Hastings and uh, who is the, still the CEO and uh, the then head of HR or people operations, Patty McCord. They put together this thing called the Netflix deck with summarizes the culture and, and let and, and the core element to that to me, at least in this story, is what we do at Netflix is we hire fully formed adults, okay? So, so what fully formed adults mean is this is not like the military where they bring in raw talent and develop them or even actually kind of McKinsey does that too. Um, yeah. But this is like, we hire fully formed adults and we expect that we're sort of like a professional sports team um, that, that you will perform as an A player or we will get rid of you. And, 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 and if you know how Netflix salary works is, is the perspective is that they pay in the top decile of the market. So they, they just do a salary. You don't have to ask for a raise. And, 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 and so under that model, we're a professional sports team. We, you're a fully formed adult. There's not like a huge amount of development. And, and part of it, and we've had Patty McCord in executive programs before, and this shocks people, is that they do not have, uh, put you can't, put people on plan they when, when you get fired they come in and they fire you that's it uh, and they give you they give you a bonus and and so i had a i had a student i can use his name now eric colson he had about 100 i have a student with 150 people reporting to him and he described to me he said well five people on my team last week patty came in and that was it they were gone because uh, they weren't a players and and then in contrast so this fully formed adults it, uh, i remember eric colson saying so I had two uh, programmers that I hired from the East Coast and I was paying them $150,000 a year, okay? And it was like a couple of weeks before they come. We did the salary survey and to be in the top decile, they should be at 250. So I called him each up and he said, I got good news for you. You're gonna get a $100,000 raise before you get here. So, so, so I, I, I never heard of that. So, so you take both of those and that was the same week that Patty came and got rid of a bunch a bunch of his employees you take both of those let's go back to the mindset we hire fully formed adults we're a professional sports team we're not a family um 
And, uh, and then part of this whole thing is like, you're an autonomous, you're, when you're an adult, we don't have to watch you that closely. Um, so, you know, uh, for example, they didn't keep track of vacation days and stuff like that. So it's a whole set of decisions that people made. And, and, and I teach it in my class and I say to my Stanford students, how many want to work there? Well, half of them want to work there. Half of them don't want to work there. And, uh, it, it, but it's a different sort of approach. But, the, but I do think that at least for the first two, you think of Netflix as sort of like a play in three acts. Act one was uh, shipping DVDs. Act two was streaming. And now they're the world's largest production company. Um, yeah. At least for the first two acts, uh, that was sort of the driving culture. And by the way, there's a really good ending to the story. Well, it's not good for Patty McCord. So Patty McCord was a tech recruiter. So she was the perfect person to be sort of head of HR in a tech company. Um, and then they became a production company. So under her own system, she was let go as head of HR because she was no longer, you know, the right person in that position to, on a professional sports team. So Patty, who's doing just fine, thank you very much. She got she got let go under her own system because uh, she was no longer the right person in the position because the world had changed. But it sounds like a cutthroat culture, Bob. So how, like, it sounds like it's clearly defined and you know what you're signing up for, but how, how does Netflix avoid that being a toxic well, workplace? And well, a so, work so, so that's really a great question. And, and so I, first of all, I only believe so much what people tell me who work there, but from what I've heard from people who work there during that time, so it's people like uh, like, like Patty and Eric Colson who are more in leadership positions, so you'd not trust me completely. But what they would say was they actually had quite happy and quite loyal employees. First of all, because people knew what they were signing up for. So a lot of, a lot of tech companies, we're especially terrible about this in Silicon Valley, we tell you how loving and caring, and we're going to be, and then you get in there and we treat you like shit, okay? It's, I'm sorry, this is, this is almost like the standard Silicon Valley company. So, so in this case, you know, you, didn't you have Kim Scott this year? On, we did, did you, yeah, we did so, back so, in February. So, yes, it can't, Kim's wonderful. So, so this is like radical candor. They, during that period, they had, they had radical candor, like you knew what you were signing up for, and you knew what the deal was, and, 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 you know, and Patty, who got fired under her own system, she's so proud of what she did at Netflix. And she's so close to the Netflix sort of uh, alums and so forth. So, so at least the argument they make is if satisfaction is the, is the difference between what you expect and what you get, they were pretty aligned. So, uh, and, 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 and then there's other cultures, you know, let's go to sort of other cultures. I, I always like the comparison, well, to McKinsey or the US Army, which might be similar sorts of thing. Uh, and I don't know if other people have had this experience, but I remember the first time I was probably 40 years old and I was invited to give a talk at McKinsey to the people who actually worked there. And I thought I would be one of the younger people in the room. It's like the children's crusade just for like a then 40 year old guy because they hire. And I now know like the number of my 22 year old uh, um, graduates who worked for McKinsey for two years before they go into business school. And then they graduate from business school and, and then they, uh, I forget what they come, they have like a next level up. And then uh, either you become a partner or you're out by the time you're like 32. And uh, so it's like the children's crusade because at every level you start with these really young people and you keep blowing them out of the pyramid. So, yeah, and I, I suppose but if they're clear, 
if they're it, clear up front on the parameters, I guess that helps. Uh, Bob, I would like to come back to the Microsoft example for a second because sure. a lot of a lot of leaders feel that their culture could perform better, but I don't think there's clarity on the right steps to take. And again, I, I know that there's a lot of there's a lot of variables that go into uh, play here, but would there be two or three tactical things that uh, you could, I, could identify maybe that Microsoft did to get that ball rolling? Well, that, so that's a good question. And, and this isn't just Microsoft. This is, uh, you could even go way back um, to, um, to, to sort of the transformation of, of IBM in the old days. But, but so th there's two things that I, I would really sort of focus on. A.G. Laffley at Procter & Gamble um, did this, but, but for large scale uh, transfer, Bill George, uh, amazing leader. Uh, um, so, so at Medtronics, and, and if you look at that, to me, there's two things I would start with. The first one is that, um, and this is hard for people who are smart, impatient, curious people, nonlinear people like me, I should never be a CEO, um, that what they'll do is they'll figure out what they think people, uh, the, the message, the focus is, and they say it over and over and over again. I remember A.G. Laffley saying, saying to me, oh, I just say the same thing over and over and over again. And he said, the message is boring to me, but it's brand new to everybody else. And, and I, I think at one point he joked that I, I only did three things as CEO at Procter & Gamble. And I just said them over and over and over again until they're done. And so you go back to Satya, uh, we, and I, I, can, I can recite it. Um, like we are learn-it-alls, we're not know-it-alls. One Microsoft, and he just keeps, and, and, and so that's the same thing. And, and, and for the leaders out there, so I have a, I have a friend, John Lilly. Uh, John Lilly um, became CEO of, if you know what the Firefox browser is, uh, Firefox is a for-profit company owned by a nonprofit called Mozilla. So anyhow, John became CEO of this open source company when they had about 12 employees and grew it to 500. And he said, every time the company grew about 20%, I had to say fewer things and I had to say them over and over again. And John is, if you met John, he is really smart. He's really curious. He has like a thousand ideas. And he said, I had to learn to throttle myself. And by the time we were 500 people, I only got to say, the, say, say like uh, three or four things at once. And so that's one thing, this idea that really, and, and, and this isn't always necessary. If you, if you look at uh, Facebook, and, and, and I think I can say this, I consulted to Facebook very early on when, when they had um, less than 150 people. And uh, they really did mean and did say, move that fast and break things over and over again. And the, I used to watch them onboard new employees and, and, and they'd say to them, you can bring down the site. I know you were at Google, but you, obviously you can't do that anymore. Um, but they really did sort of say that over and over again, move fast and break things. So that's one. And, and I do think that in the cultural transformation, and just as somebody who's had, you know, moderate interaction with Microsoft over the last few years and read a lot about them, even I can sort of like repeat the, some of the key Satya Nadella stuff. And then the other thing, and this is something that, um, that, that I, I, it describes McKinsey, and McKinsey, I have mixed feelings about, but still they, they are a well-managed uh, culture. Certainly Procter & Gamble at times, uh, now Microsoft um, in an IDEO would be another example. Um, so uh, Stitch Fix 2. So the question is, who is a superstar? 
and, the, and in some ways, uh, Jeff Effer and I wrote a book. Uh, I see you have a conference on execution coming up on the knowing doing gap. So I've always been interested in that for years. And the question is, what's the kind of culture where people can actually execute and turn knowledge into action? And, and the diagnostic question we, we use is who's a so superstar here? And so the question of who's a superstar is, uh, is uh, do you get ahead by stomping on people on the way to the top? That's the old Microsoft culture with the guns. That's the old yeah. Microsoft culture. Or do you get ahead by doing good individual work and helping the people around you succeed? And, and, and by the way, back to Netflix, they had a very clear answer to that question that one of the definitions of fully formed adult, and so you're in a studio, they have the no asshole rule. They had the no asshole rule at, micro, at, at uh, Netflix too, that if you were somebody who was a jerk who undermined other people's uh, work, that was one of the reasons that Patty would come and get rid of you, no matter how big of a star and how smart you were. So, so, so to go back, and I'm just doing two instead of three, and we maybe can talk about Buddhism and Catholicism, but, but this, uh, th this notion of, well, who, um, so what's, what's the mindset, what's sacred and what's taboo, a relatively short list that people actually live? And the second one is who's a superstar, which I think is a really important question. And, and there's, there's gonna be other variations of who's a star depending on what your mindset is, but those are the two I would start with. Yeah, and I like the superstar mentality and also that Netflix, I mean, any company can define what a superstar means to them. So that, that's helpful. That also closes a bit of gap, I think, for me on what, uh, what prevented Netflix from being a toxic cutthroat environment. So they, they kind of had some balance there, which is good. Uh, Bob, I want to talk about what you're doing now. So you're working on this book all about friction. Yeah. Uh, give, give us a little, give us some insight on, on uh, what you're working on. Oh, sure. So uh, this is this has gone on for we've got a lot of articles on it. And finally, we have a book contract. I think it's called the will be called the Friction Project. So Heidi and I, so so we finished the scaling book. And one of the great things about the scaling adventure is there's all these organizations we were involved in that got bigger and bigger. So Google, I'm one of my students and the thing about Stanford, you get such rich students. Shona Brown, she was hired as number four right after the IPO. She was the highest ranking non-product executive. So she really scaled a lot of Google um, yeah. right, right before Larry became CEO. But so, so we had her perspective. I mentioned, uh, I mentioned uh, Facebook. Uh, um, a couple of our students actually started Instagram. So, so, I, so I'd see what would happen to these companies that were kind of little and cute. Google used to be so little and so cute and sort of just like precious, like you wanted to pinch their cheeks and then they're Google, you know? Um, and, and, and so the thing that we started um, noticing was people would complain that things were getting harder and harder to get done. Then at the same time to tell some, literally to tell some tales out of school since it's school. So I've been at Stanford, as you said, like forever. I've been there since 1983. I tried to leave once I failed. Um, and, and so when Stanford started, it was so informal and so easy to get things done. It was ridiculous. And I can give you a good objective measure. I'm in the Stanford School of Engineering. And when I first got there in 1983, we had one person in the entire school who was a finance person, who was a bean counter. One person, whole school. Um, now, just in my department, which is a pretty effective department, well, we've got three people who are bean counters and then if you've got like a little program that's part of it, they'll get their own bean counters too. 
and, and, and things have gotten harder and harder and harder to get done at Stanford. And, I, and, and this is not a criticism of Stanford. It's, it's much worse at Berkeley, which is my alma mater. It's just this friction. So, so we got interested initially in what drives people crazy. And, 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 and you know, we, we just have all these friction sort of, sort of horror stories. I already described uh, you know, one of them, the social service agency where people couldn't get anything done uh, or they couldn't um, sign up all the sort of classic stuff about the email and, and so forth. And so, so we collected a bunch of stuff and, and one of the big themes in the friction project, which we should probably dig into is subtraction. But along the way, we also learned that there's a whole bunch of things that really should be hard to do and actually maybe ought to be harder. Um, so so, so the, the, the flow of the book is sort of, well, here's the friction problem. And uh, some things ought to be hard, some things ought to be easy. How do you tell the difference? And then we have uh, six or, or seven different sort of um, entree points to sort of, sort of fix it. But, but the, this sort of main idea that, that friction is, is sort of a problem we all have to deal with. And it isn't just that everything ought to be easy because life is, life is hell. And just, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this one brief story that is one of my my favorite stories that shows sort of the nuance of friction, which is back to, uh, it's got a scaling element in it too. So there's, there's a guy who some of you may have seen the book Work Rules by Laszlo Bach. So Laszlo was head of, they call it people operations, but HR at Google for a good 15 years. And uh, one of the ways that Google scaled really fast, and in fact, Jeff Pfeffer and I, my co-author, we interviewed Larry Page in 2002, somewhere I still have the recording. 2002, they, I met him at a conference and we interviewed him and Larry Page was saying, yeah, he said, so So I'm in the engineering school, as I said, I keep interviewing all these people and I really have a bad reputation in the school of engineering because I'll interview, especially, you know, people in computer science, seven, eight, tw uh, 12 times and they'll just get pissed because it'll take us, you know, us so long to make a decision, Larry and Sergey. And okay, so that's great. In the, in the early time, we want to get the right people. The people have both the technical skills and, and the managerial skills, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So then they get to the point where the company has got thousands and thousands of people. And they're not like the darling anymore. They're just like another tech company, honestly. And, and, and Laszlo figures out they still have this thing where people are being interviewed 8, 10, 12, 15 times. They're, they're getting pissed off. They're losing to the competition. And think about it from just an, a friction standpoint. If the expectation is that before we hire somebody, everybody in our group interviews them 10 or 12 or 15 times, it's also a huge load on everybody else. So that's that's sort of this friction and you can do whatever you want story. So Laszlo, what he did was he put in this simple rule, which was if you're gonna interview somebody more than four times, you can do it, but you have to write me for permission. That was it. And, and, and he said, the degree to which it went away was unbelievable. So to me, that's sort of like being aware of sort of the friction. So you're putting in friction, uh, good friction to get rid of, of bad friction. So, that, so in some ways yeah. to me, that's almost like a definitive sort of story be, because he was very much aware that his job, and that's one of our mottos in, in, in the book is your in organizational psychology is, uh, is your job is to do what, what you can with, you know, what you have with um, where you are with what you can to do something good. So you got Laszlo doing that. And I talked about the DMV employee about half an hour ago, but we're all standing in line in the DMV and he does everything we can, he can to reduce the friction on us and his colleagues. 
because he had a little bit of power and he actually made things a lot better for all of us. Yeah. When we talk about friction, I can't help but think about most of the world is focused on removing it. And that's not always a good thing. So you mentioned a very tangible example there where you're adding some friction to the hiring process, uh -huh. streamline and, and sped it up and save people time, which is awesome. Are, are there some ways that, that, uh, that managers uh, or some kind of frameworks that managers can use to try to determine what might be some good friction? Well, that's, that's a, well, you sort of start with, and we have sort of like, like a list we're developing, but you start with a couple of things. Well, first of all, is it bad or good? I, I mean, that's, that's kind of what, so, you know, we, we have in the States here, we have uh, finished the Elizabeth Holmes trial with Theranos. And, uh, and, and some of you may know the story that, that there was a Lieutenant Colonel in the Department of Defense who she got really mad at because uh, when she wanted to install her blood testing device on, on army helicopters, which did not have FDA approval, uh, he, he said, you got to do all the stuff, you got to have FDA approval. And then, and then he grabbed it and started taking out a cartridge. And she said, you can't do that. And, and he said, you put this in a helicopter, the first thing the guy's going to do is try to take it apart. This, that's just what's going to happen. So, and, and, and this guy got called and kind of yelled at by uh, Mad Dog Mattis who was actually eventually on Elizabeth's board. And, and, and it was like, no, you can't do it. So to me, that's good friction. Like you, like you can't put something on the helicopter which, which isn't proven to work. So, so that, that's where you know, people say bureaucrats are terrible. Yes, bad bureaucrats are terrible. But to me, that's actually stopping something that's good to do. So, so is it good or bad? The next thing, and, and, and you know, we, we taught a lot about the gas and the brakes, is, is that um, if you don't know how to do something well, um, you should probably not rush ahead and do it even if it's the right thing. So that's, that's another thing. And, it just, and, and, and it's sort of in some ways a sad tale is one of the reasons that uh, I think the design thinking movement, and I'm a big advocate of design thinking when it's done well, one of the reasons I think that design thinking is, uh, is failed in so many places is that, uh, is that people will start doing it when they don't know how to do it well. So they'll take one, and, 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 th and this is partly maybe even, uh, I'm somebody who gets contributory negligence here. We did all these one hour trainings or one week trainings, and then we would tell people to go forth and do design thinking, but maybe they weren't skilled enough at it. Um, and, 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 and there's actually a bunch of research on the arc of fads, management fads, which is, this is consistent with, which is in the beginning, the people who do it, they don't even know what they're doing, but they do it really, really deeply and learn it. And then as it gets more and more popular, people use, start doing it so they can say they're doing it, even though they don't really mean it. And then people discover that there's a whole bunch of unskilled practitioners and they say, well, in this case, design thinking doesn't work. And I think in some ways we've gone through the arc of that fad. There's a bunch of research that that arc happens. And just you know, go back to design thinking, one of our heroes in the book, this is Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble actually had a very successful design thinking uh, movement, 2003, 2004, something like that. It was led by a woman like, named Claudia Kochka, who was head of the movement. She, A.G. Laffley, we had a lot of support from her. She did design thinking. Uh, hired the best people, really sort of grounded out and developed it as, as a craft, hired designers, did it slowly and correctly. Um, 
And she didn't even call it design thinking because she thought that was like, sounded like fetish stuff. She just called it an innovation movement. So, so now what you have at the beginning of the fad, people not calling it design thinking because nobody knows what it is. Now people are, no, are doing design thinking and not calling it design thinking because it's like a worn out fad. So we're back to calling it innovation at the beginning and the end of the fad, boom. But it's right. still the same stuff when it's done well. Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack there in what you said. I mean, even this, uh, the notion that we could have the right tool, but the wrong application or a yeah. misunderstanding. But we blame the tool when it's the practitioner's, uh, when it's the practitioner's fault or the implementation's fault. So that's, that is interesting. Uh, uh, Bob, I know there are people that are tuning in here specifically because they want some advice on dealing with assholes. And, uh, you know, we, we probably have all worked with an asshole or two in our lives. And, and we, you know, and actually, maybe we most of us have taken the turn being the asshole. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're all capable of it. For sure. I mean, uh, I, I want to make sure people have at least a couple things they can do from a tactical sure. perspective. So, if, so, if so they're my, working with an asshole. Well, so I, I'll, I'll do sort of like my three or four headlines and, and people who who know this, uh, who know my stuff. I'm no. Did you have somebody on who talked about quitting too? Uh, well, we had Annie Duke. Annie Duke that talked about uh, decision making, but her book in October is quit. Yeah, that's that's what that's one of my bits of advice. So so I would start out with my headline, and this is in the Asshole Survival Guide at the end of the first chapter, which is that um, the word asshole is sort of a even though there's all sorts of evidence that uh, people who face psychological abuse and so forth, it's actually terrible for us. It's like the notion that assholes are good for organizations. Uh -uh, there's, they might get ahead in an I win, you lose game, but the, it's bad for productivity. It's bad for mental health. It's bad for your organization's reputation. It's, it's, it's generally bad, except in an I win, you lose sort of game. It might be okay for you individually. But, but one of the problems is, and there's all sorts of evidence that we tend to uh, quickly call other people assholes, but not recognize it in ourselves. So something like 50% of Americans say that they have worked with um, or seen abuse in their workplace, but one half of 1% of Americans say they've ever been the abuser. So, so I would start with the notion of be slow to label others as an asshole, and don't say it to their face, by the way, it's a problem usually. And, and, and the other one is to be quick to label yourself. So I would start out with that sort of bias. And, and but, but then if, if we're sort of, and there's a whole bunch of things you can do to build a culture, some of which we talked about. And that's when I wrote the No Asshole Rule, by the way, I thought it was a book about uh, building an organizational culture. Um, but that's why I ended up writing the Asshole Survival Guide, because everybody asked me the same question. I have an asshole, what do I do about it? So to avoid reading the book, here's the top three lessons. <laughs> if, you've, if you've got one uh, and you're in a situation, uh, so my main advice is get out as quick as you can. It, it, and really on the whole, uh, there some, some people who are stuck, maybe it's a problem, but if you wanna get rid of the person, and I had a member of my family who didn't read this, my book, but did this beautifully, I can't believe it. She actually got her asshole boss fired. I can't believe it. She didn't even read my book, but she did it perfectly. You do kind of three things. Um, one thing that you do is that you document. That's really important. Uh, the second thing you do is try, if you possibly can, to find a powerful ally. So if you can go around that person, figure out who's got power over that person. And then the third thing, and there's pretty good evidence about this, 
which is that if you form a posse, so you get your friends to document, boom, you're probably going to win. Um, or at least your odds of winning goes up. So the unnamed member in my family who, who did have an asshole boss, and I just could, I was like, you didn't even read the book. Uh, so first she documents, then she, she um, makes best friends with the head of HR, and then she gets all of her colleagues to send the documentation of the asshole bot. Boom, she was gone. I was like, you didn't even read my book, but she did it perfectly. So it, it doesn't yeah. always work, but when it works, those tend to be the hallmark. But I would go back to the situation that many of us are in situations where we can't, where we can't get out. Um, yeah. But, uh, but if, you, if you can get out, that's where I uh, agree with Andy Duke. And, and I said this to you before we went on air, which, which is that um, I've never met anybody who said, gee, I wish I had worked for my asshole boss longer. Um, I've met thousands of people who said, if only I had quit sooner, it felt so much better. And then there's another yeah. side to this. And this, and this is around firing assholes, which is that every boss I've ever met who has fired an asshole employee says the same thing. Why did I wait so long? Everybody feels so much better. I feel so much better. So those are the two yeah. sides of the no asshole rule, I guess. Get out that, get really fast. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, this episode is, if this was Sesame Street, we'd be saying that this is uh, sponsored by the sound bleep. So, uh, that's <laughs> Bob, in the time that we have left, I got a couple more questions for you. And, uh, and one of them I just had to ask you is in all of the people that I have met that we've had on this show in the last couple of years, uh, you have been a common thread amongst many of them in terms of not only the influence that you've had, but just the large amount of respect that they have for you. And I have to ask you, what does that mean to you? Uh, well, I, I love to hear that, but uh, I'm not a Canadian, but I sort of act like a Canadian, which is when people give me compliments, I want to insult myself. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it. I work with a lot of Canadian students, but but I, one thing that I do think, at least when it's my best self, I think that like many of us, I have like a, a dark self and a best self. But I think my best self is that I really do try to support my colleagues. And and one thing that I've learned is that um, when I look at uh, at colleagues as competitors, it's really bad for my mind. When, and this is straight out of Adam Grant's givers and takers too. When I look at them as people who I want to help and I hope they will help me, that's when my best self is. And, and uh, you know, so some of the people you've had, Adam and Kim, I know quite well, both of them, uh, that's very much the way that, that we would sort of have a, have a relationship together because that's, that's how they tend to behave. So, so I, I think I'm back to Adam's um, give and take sort of stuff. And don't be an asshole is a much cruder version of that, both uh, in terms of being swearing and also intellectually. But, uh, but that idea about trying to give to people. But then also, I'm really sensitive when I start feeling that um, you're being exploited. So I, I have a colleague I won't name, but, but one of my friends described working with her. And he said, so if you were on a desert island with her and there were a thousand skittles, and that's all you had to eat every day. It would be um, one for you, nine for me. And, and when you're in, you're in a relationship with somebody like that, that, those are the ones that I tend to sort of, sort of cool out. So, so there, there are some takers out there in the world, but I think most people, if you give them a chance to bring out their best selves, that's what you get. And what, I didn't know you had Amy Edmondson. Amy is just 
a model of a wonderful, caring giver. I, she and I have a common mentor, Richard Hackman. So we're sort of, um, you know, sort of connected genetically. That's also one of uh, Adam's mentors. He had, a, he had Richard in a class at Harvard as an undergrad. But, uh, but she's also another person who Amy is just such a giver. That's why she has so many wonderful PhD students too. Uh, Bob, thank you for that, uh, that articulate answer. And uh, you've certainly been a, a giver, a, a generous giver in our interactions. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget, it was Remembrance Day when I got a reply email from you saying that you wanted to come on the program. And I was, uh, I was running around the house giddy the rest of the day. Just oh, that's so nice. To have you on the program. Bob, there's so much more ground we could have covered here too. I mean, you're just a wealth of knowledge and maybe we'll have to have you back on the program at, at, some, at some point down the line. And uh, where can people find you? Uh, where do you want people to track you down and interact with you? Uh, so, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn and, uh, and I'm on Twitter. Those are the two places that I, I'm not on Facebook. Um, so those are the two places that I tend to, I tend to um, interact with people a lot. Um, I like Twitter, but I have to control myself and not do too much Twitter. I get in trouble. <laughs> so those uh, no, are the two places. Understood. You can stay connected to us through all your favorite social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find us on LinkedIn and, and uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, of course. And to track down the recording of today's episode and all of our other episodes, we're getting close to 50 episodes now. You can find them on our website very easily at unleashresults.com. And uh, we will be promoting uh, past episodes throughout the off season and then uh, gearing up. We've already got a number of wonderful speakers here uh, confirmed for season six, which will kick off sometime in the fall. So until then, everybody be well. And I hope what you've learned today and through the prior discussions will help you unleash your leadership potential and make a bigger impact on the people in the world around you. Bob, this has been just a wonderful way to spend an hour. And uh, this is our final episode of season five. And so I just want to have a special thank you to Bob for being here today and all of our guests. And Thanks, of course, Jeff. the audience that tunes in live and, and listens to the podcast and, and subscribes to the YouTube channel. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank our wonderful team. Uh, so Andrea, Catherine, and Nicole on our side of things. And then uh, everybody at Road 55, Trevor Blake, Glenn and Rob, just what a wonderful team of people and what a great crew to work with. Thanks for tuning in. Now, if you found today's conversation helpful, don't forget to share it with your friends and colleagues who like learning as much as you do. And if you're a leader of a business and you're ready to take the next step because you know there's unleashed potential that exists within it, don't wait another minute. Go to unleashresults.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll take care of the rest.